know that diverse groups outperform homogeneous groups, diverse organizations outperform or, or homogeneous organizations. And so the, 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 you know, the, the business argument is when we do it, we grow. And then when we grow, we create more opportunity for people that where there was none before. Greetings everyone and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we're joined by an interesting thought leader, all in the name of helping you unleash your leadership potential with their insights, tools, and habits. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, CEO of Results, where we believe there's a hard path and an easier path to building your business. We partner with your leadership team to show you how to dramatically improve your results by perfecting the art of execution to get more of what you want from your business. In today's episode, we're exploring a very important topic, leveling the playing field for women in the workplace with research psychologist, Alison Fregale. Alison will share her research and her tips for how women can create a more equitable workplace, even if the structures don't change. And listen up, men. She's gonna talk about why men, even if they want to, don't typically speak up how we can start to, and some ideas that she has for how we can become allies, all in the name of creating a level workplace experience for women. It'll also have tips and strategies that you can share with your communities, your colleagues, and those closest to you so that we can all bring about change. I wanna thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University, and they partner with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their online offerings include leadership, digital transformation, project management, artificial intelligence and ethics, digital wellness, and embracing allyship and inclusion. Their core belief is that learning should be fun, engaging, and easily accessible. Their online platform means your employees can literally learn from wherever they are located. PowerEd meets them in their space and at a time that works best for them. Check out PowerEd at powered.ca. Today's episode sponsor is David Applin Group. David Applin Group has been recruiting to fulfill talent demands from Vancouver to Halifax for over 45 years. As one of Canada's best managed companies, David Applin Group provides temporary, contract, permanent, and executive recruiting solutions in a wide variety of industries across Canada. Check them out at applin.com. And don't forget to help us grow the community by sharing the episode links with people in your network that love learning as much as you do. Check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. Now on with the episode. Now my guest today is Allison Fergale. Allison is a research psychologist and a tenured professor at the University of North Carolina's Keenan Flagler Business School. She is passionate about sharing her knowledge of how humans think, feel, and act to help professionals tackle their biggest challenge, understanding and managing the people around them. Dubbed the approachable academic, Allison's unique style <clears throat> is equal parts educator and entertainer. With more than 15 years of experience as a researcher, educator, and big stage speaker, she excels at conveying actionable, evidence-based advice to her audiences in a relaxed, relatable way. Allison's instruction on the psychology of power is part of the required general officer curriculum in both the U.S. Army and U.S. Air Force. She also has unique expertise and interest in women's leadership and regularly speaks on negotiation, advocacy, and advancement for women in organizations. Allison currently resides in Chicago with her husband and their three children, who are all named after professional athletes. 
She also loves, in no particular order, cheap coffee, not so cheap wine, fabulous shoes, home, uh, home organizing, sushi, the Pittsburgh Steelers, Orange Theory workouts, Hallmark movies, and the Golden Girls. She always orders the bread pudding and she starts listening to Christmas music on Halloween. So it's almost the festive season. Allison, welcome back to Unleashed. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So I, I'm excited to I'm excited to spend some time with you today on a very important topic. Uh, but I would be remiss if I didn't point out the fact it's a very special occasion today. I think for you and I both, and probably a bit more for you than me. But you're the first two-time guest that we have had on Unleashed. How does that feel? Yeah, amazing. Normally, once is enough when most people deal with me. So I'm I'm very uh, honored and pleased to be back. And all kidding aside, the honor really is uh, is mine uh, and our audience. So thank you for uh, for making time for it. Now, you also recently spent, what was it, nine days in Malibu, California on some kind of a wellness retreat. And I had to ask because sort of knowing you, uh, uh, when what I know about this wellness retreat, retreat there was no alcohol and it sure. was a vegan diet. So surely you must have at least one funny musing or one funny story you can share with us. Sure. I mean, I was, I was looking forward to this. This was my reward for rehabbing my knee after surgery. And so there's, there's no coffee, there's no caffeine, there's no alcohol, vegan, and you hike intensely for four hours a day before you come back and lift weights. And so there's two kinds of people when I told I was going there, right? The category of, oh my God, that's amazing. Why didn't you invite me? And the, you could never pay me enough money to go to something like that in my entire life. Um, no, it was, it was amazing. And I, I felt awesome. And it's amazing how short-lived all that wellness is when you return to the, to the real world and all those intentions that I, that I brought with me. But, um, I, uh, yeah, we had to, we had, when we got there, the first thing they did was they weighed us and then they weigh you again on the way out. And, uh, my friends who I'd seen beforehand, they said, well, we can't send you to this thing starving. We got to feed you well. So they sent me off before I left. Um, and I ate a burrito, a breakfast burrito that was as large as my head. And then they gave me cookies and brownies and I ate all of it. And then I got there and they weighed me. And then they said, gave me a form and they said, what did you, what did you, what was the last thing you ate? And there was literally not enough space in the form for me to put all the things I had eaten that morning. So I just wrote eggs. So anyway, I, uh, I, I weighed in with a full breakfast burrito and then I weighed out, uh, a little bit, a little bit lighter. So it was good. So were they astonished by, uh, by your weight loss achievements in nine well, days? Well, I will say I was the female there and perhaps the person there that lost the most weight because it is very um, biggest loser-esque. At the end, they weigh you. And although it's not public, they weigh you in a, a private room and everyone comes out and everyone else is standing around staring at you until you say how much weight you lost. So I did lose the biggest number, but I was very open to my fellow um, uh, guests that I did enter with about three pounds of breakfast burrito on my stomach. All right. All right. Well, I hope that the instructors aren't watching and they, uh, you know, they, uh, they come after you or something like that. So well, congratulations. I don't know if they gave you a prize for that, but they might, they might revoke the t-shirt if, um, if you won one for your accomplishments. I so know. Allison, we're, uh, we're talking about, a I know a, a subject and topic that's very near and dear to you and you're very, very well versed in it, of course. And it's a very important topic, which is leveling the play playing field for women in the workplace. And I think there's a few things that I'm hoping listeners can get out of, uh, out of today's discussion. And you know, number one, really directed towards women in terms of what 
they can do to help each other and improve their own position if systems and structures don't change. I, I think the second piece to this that's important is really calling out to men and saying, how can men be part of the solution? And then if we've got some time for it, the third piece is I, I wouldn't mind exploring a bit the broader perspective of inequality in the workplace and talking about some of the systems and the structures that exist, because the systems and the structures I find are often invisible to most of us. And we can, we can certainly be advocates on a personal, on a, and even just on an interpersonal one-to-one -one level, but it doesn't really do anything to break down systems and structures. So there's a, there's a few things that I'm hoping that we can cover today and anything else uh, that's on your mind, uh, like, uh, uh, like always. So I know that you've spent your career helping women help themselves. Let's start off maybe by if you can just share a little bit about what helping women help themselves actually looks like, what that means for you. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, in order to, to take any sort of underrepresented or undervalued individual or group and change their outcomes, just as you said, you've got to attack it from multiple directions. So one is, if nothing else in that person's environment changes, what are the best, most effective things that person can do to get better outcomes? And then the second one is how do you change the environment? So um, for me, I do a lot of the former, which is helping individuals. For me, it wasn't so much a strategic choice I made to talk about one versus the other, but in terms of my own history, I am a professor. So I speak generally to emerging leaders or existing leaders and often about their own career path, their own development. And a lot of the, the way I got into this work was through negotiation, which you know I talk a lot about. And so in negotiation, we talk about how people can be good advocates for themselves. And negotiation is an area where we know a lot about the differences between men and women. And women would come to me and say, hey, you know, how do I take these general pieces of advice and, and use them to the best of my ability, given I have some unique challenges? And after I got enough of those questions, I realized I should be proactive and start saying something about this to women. And so I started my uh, advocacy for women as a speaker to women, helping them take the science of advocacy and modify it for their unique circumstances. And so that's the role that I've often played in the conversation because that's where I started and that's what I know. Uh, but the other half of the conversation, and, and I can speak to it a bit, is just as important, which is how to, to your point, how do you get people, how do you change the system? You've got a bit of a funny story you shared with me a couple of weeks ago about uh, you know, being stuck in a well and how that applies to advocacy and and looking after ourselves if structures don't change. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing that. Yeah, so I have not gotten this pushback a lot myself, but there is a narrative uh, in when you talk about um, helping any, again, underrepresented or undervalued group advance, this idea of, well, why are you giving women advice? Like that just gives women more things to do. It's not their fault. They, you should tell everybody else to change. So I think is a valid um, perspective. And, and the, the analogy I always give when I, when, when I get that type of reaction is, I said, imagine you were just walking along, minding your own business, and someone came up behind you and they pushed you into a well and you fell down into a well and you would look up and you'd, you'd say, it's not my fault, I'm in this well. And then what would you do next? Would you say, well, it's your fault I'm in this well, so you get me out. I'll just sit here until you come rescue me. And I said, most people probably wouldn't do that. Most people would probably say, well, 
I'm ended up in the well, like I can be mad about it, but how am I going to start crawling my, crawling my way out while I also hope that someone comes and throws me a rope. And so again, both are important. Both people have a responsibility. So there's, you know, how do you not push people into wells? How do you rescue people who are already there? But then if you're the person in the well, well, what are the things you can do to climb out more efficiently and effectively? You'd probably want to know. And if someone said, hey, do you want me to teach you how to climb out of the well? I don't think there's many people who would say, nah, it's not my fault. I'll just wait. So that's my the way I think about it is that both of those things are really important and we can get people out of wells faster if we have everybody kind of working to solve the problem. Yeah, I like that a lot. So not only, I mean, it's, it's a funny story. People will remember, will remember that, but it really is a fitting metaphor. Uh, and, it, and if we're um, if we're imbalanced in that story and we're only doing one of those things, that's not enough. So we really have to be working together to meet each other in the middle and look for strategies to, to save ourselves and look for strategies to help save and rescue others. So I, I, I love that. So I'm obviously a huge fan of your work. I follow... Um, Every LinkedIn post, every I hang off every word, uh, whether it's uh, research or just a funny ant- anecdote that you're sharing, Allison. Uh, one of the articles uh, going back a few months now that that you uh, that you penned and, and spoke about was two big assumptions that women make in the workplace that hurt them. What are those two assumptions? And I wonder if you can elaborate on those a little bit. Oh, now you're going to have to remind me um, of uh, of what I wrote. Um, I and do remember. Got- I do remember the two assumptions. Um, yeah, and and yeah, and it was the 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 risk taking and 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 the endorsing and uh, of their own work were the two assumptions that I I thought were really interesting. Yeah, so I think um, the idea about throwing your throwing your hat name into the into the hat and taking more shots. I think this was my my Gretzky quote. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the one of them is that um, you know we. Uh, see, until we think about women's advocacy, we can advocate for ourselves in a lot of different ways. Um, and so um, one assumption, right, is like, I won't, I won't make the shot, right? So why should I, I bother, I bother taking it? And there's a gender difference there. So if you, and a lot of people would have seen this, these kind of uh, stats, like women are less likely to enter into conversations about advocacy, whether that's a formal negotiation, like, will you pay me more? Or um, uh, like, I want to go for something. I want to be selected for this position. I want to be on this committee. I want to serve on this board, whatever it is. And we see women being less likely to put themselves out there uh, for a couple of, based on a couple of assumptions that, that, that they make. Um, And one is that we follow the rules, you know, so there's a lot written about unicorn job descriptions, for example. So when we have really long lists of qualifications of ideal people, those those lists disadvantage certainly women who feel like they have to hit all of the qualifications in order to apply. So the joke is, you know, if if there's six qualifications for a position, women have to hit seven of them before they'll um, enter their name and men are like at four or or so. Um, And if you look at the data on why do women and men differ, there's two two differences that you see. One is um, fear of failure. I don't want to put myself out there if I'm going to fail. And uh, the other one is I'm following the rules. I color within the lines. If the rules say six, then I should have six. But that fear of failure, right, is a challenge because I tell people, again, if you, if you and you, I know you like hockey, right? If you are making 100% of your shots, the only thing we know is that you are not taking enough shots on goal. 
right? No one does that. And so the same thing, I'd say if you're too successful at what you're going for, the biggest um, conclusion I can draw from that is you're not reaching high enough. There has to be some failure rate. And we see that in negotiations and we see that in the women's management of their own, of their own career. So if you're not failing, you're not pushing hard enough. So I think it's interesting to talk, to talk about fear of failure, Allison, because everybody, I think almost everybody, at least it's safe to say, experience is, experiences fear of failure. What is it that makes a difference between men and women that fear of failure seems to prevent women from taking that risk when it doesn't, um, by and large, for men? Yeah, so I'll speculate a bit because yeah. I don't know for sure, but there's a couple of things that we do know from science that would explain it. One is we have different gender stereotypes and the stereotype that we associate with women is that we are, um, we are strong on, on the, the, um, the other orientation dimension of, uh, you know, of personality or, or judgment, meaning we are socialized and expected to care about other people and care about what other people think and to, to do right by other people more so than men. So we're high, we rank higher on that dimension in our own expectations and in others. And so that idea of fear of failure is a lot about how will other people see me? A lot of things about, you know, I don't want to waste somebody else's time. Those are all these other oriented concerns that I think are, we are, women are very much socialized and expected to uphold. So I think that's one reason. And then um, I think the other reason has to do with status, which is that um, that status is how highly respected and regarded people are. And on average, your gender is a status characteristic. Men have hold higher status than women on average, right? Not person to person, but on average. And so the, when you recognize on some level that you lack status, then um, your failure right, um, is, can be seen more as a status threat. Whereas when you feel you have status already, then failure is not as, is not as threatening. Yeah, that's interesting. How familiar are you with some of the research that's done on um, masculinity, for example? So someone with masculine traits tends to view business as more of a game and maneuvers and, and things of that nature where somebody that has more feminine traits and characteristics treats business more as it's purposeful and something to be taken very seriously and being very intentional, but not treating it as a game at all. It's kind of life and life and death. Have you seen any of that? I actually have not. Um, yeah. So that's interesting and, and very, uh, but very consistent with yeah. what we do, what we do know. And I, so what I, what I would say, say is I'm very intrigued by that research is that it's taking, so a lot of when I talk, right, I say men and women, and I say that from a perspective of science, meaning the existing academic we have often says, okay, if you're, you know, biologically female groups, um, but now the recognition that maybe th some of that is not about male or female, right? But masculine versus feminine, different approaches that could go across um, genders and the same idea that if there are two dimensions that end up being really important, this, these are central to a lot of my work. Um, there are dimensions on which we judge ourselves and we judge other people. And I always go like this when I talk about them because they are like a two-dimensional space. Um, that vertical dimension is that self-concern, dominance, competence, assertiveness, um, uh, 
things like that. And then that horizontal dimension is concern for other people. And so the mass that we associate things that are masculine much more with that vertical dimension, we associate things that are feminine much more with that horizontal dimension. So in that work that you're talking about, again, hearing about it now for the first time, that idea that if you, if you identify or are perceived as more masculine, it's not surprising to me that people would associate you or you would associate yourself with that more vertical dimension of self-concern. And so I'm not sure, I, I don't know the language of like, it's a game, but the idea of yeah. I, I want to win. And so I'm going to be out to basically maximize my own outcomes in that regard. Whereas if you are higher oriented on that dimension that we associate with femininity, that's much more about what value am I delivering, delivering to others? How, how are other people going to see me? Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense, Allison. Thank you for that. So if we think about women not taking as many risks unless they have a virtual certainty that they're going to you know, be successful in the risk that they're taking, just simply suggesting women should take more risks seems like a you know, simple uh, form of advice, but not necessarily effective. What are some strategies? Like, so if, if women that are tuning in and listening right now, they're identifying with that, I'm sure, and saying, well, okay, help me. How can I start to have more confidence to take some risks? What are some strategies uh, and, and some actions that women can take? Yeah. So, I mean, one is start measuring your success a little bit differently. Like, you know, you got to look at shots on goal and that's both like how many things did I take and how many did, did I, did I, you know, ultimately went in. I find specifically one thing that can help a lot with this is you need somebody else's perspective. So I'll, I often play that perspective for other people. I've been a professor for years. I've had thousands of students of all levels, professionals, MBAs, you name it. And they, at least once a week, I get a call from one of them and I'm overdue on some of these responding to people. So if you're listening and I'm overdue, I will get to you. Um, and they say, hey, Allison, I've got something coming up. I've got a negotiation. I've got a tough conversation. Can I talk it through with you? And I, of course, I get on the phone with them. And I would say 99% of the time, the person calling me doesn't actually need any advice. They think they need advice. But when I talk to them, they've got a handle on the problem. They know their life better than I do. They have the data. They have the info. You know what they need? They need someone to tell them that th they are doing the right thing and that this is legitimate and that they are entitled to go and have this conversation and that it's all going to be okay and that they're going to feel really good one way or another after they've had it. That's what they really need. And so one specific thing is seek those people out. Like each of those people made an outreach to say, I need someone to help me talk through this. So find a person and find somebody who's different than you. So if you know that you tend to be really conservative, it's hard for you to put yourself out there, find the person who has an easier time of that and have them talk you through it. And I think you get off the phone and you say, all right, I can do this. And so we, you know, we need that outside perspective. Yeah. The other thing that you talked about, Allison, is that women are not as, um, they're not as likely to endorse their own work. And what are some thoughts on how women can overcome the inability or the unwillingness perhaps to sort of shine a spotlight on the caliber and quality of their own work? Yeah. So, and that's an assumption. That's that, that's probably the second assumption in my in the in the thing that you were referring to, is that my work will speak for itself, right? We all believe that to some degree, right? We were raised to think like well, the world is a meritocracy. If you just are the hardest working, you know, best performing person in the room, good things happen. And I always say, look, life's a meritocracy, but only in the very long run, right? In the short run, there's a lot of noise, and so we know 
that it doesn't, you know, self-promotion is, is hard. I've done, I've done work on Adam Grant. I know who's going to come on here and um, we are co-authors and we did work on self-promotion together. Um, it's hard, right? It's not particularly fun. And there's a belief that my work will speak for itself. Well, it turns out that belief is, is not really true. And it's less true for women than for men. So you look at the research when people perform well. So I'll give you a specific example. So the, the study that I really like, they, they it's hypothetical, but they basically presented somebody who spoke up in a meeting with a good idea. And the question is, would that person get a bump in their status and their leadership sort of um, aptitude from the audience after they spoke up with a good idea? Well, it depends on whether the person speaking up was male or female, right? The exact same action gave the man a bump, but it didn't give the woman any bump. And so this reticence that we all might have to not um, promote ourselves is particularly disadvantageous to women whose performance doesn't necessarily speak for itself. And I just was, um, this morning, I just saw on LinkedIn a reference to to an older study um, posted by by, uh, someone that I know about uh, off the topic of women, but on the topic of race and basically looking at um, memos that were, you know, fictitious memos that were written by lawyers and where they manipulated whether the lawyer writing the memo was black or white and the same good ideas, right? And the memos had some errors in them and people were less likely to catch and correct the errors when the author was white. And they thought that the memos were better written and they were higher quality. So our evaluation of performance is highly dependent on who the person is performing. And I think it's important as unfortunate and unfair as it is to be in one of those categories where your performance is devalued because of who you are. I think it's also important to know it so that you recognize you need to do good work. I consider that baseline, but then you need to be strategic about making sure that people recognize it as good work because the science is just not supportive of the idea that good work gets recognized no matter who you are. Allison, I don't know if this is too too much to unpack in the time that we have, but I'm just fascinated when I hear you say that about some of the causes of some of those biases and some of those blind spots when a woman speaks up and is deemed more negatively versus a man uh, correcting the errors. Like, where do some of these biases and blind spots come from? So I think it's helpful to understand that they exist so that we can consciously make decisions to overcome them. But they're so deep rooted. That's what always makes me nervous and afraid that it's, they're, they're going to be very difficult to meaningfully shift and, and eradicate. So, yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about bias of any kind, forget just gender or race bias. Let's just look at decision bias. We've known for a long time that human beings have a lot of non-conscious forces on their decision-making. And one of the challenges we have with non-conscious brain is that we can understand it. And then we can tell you what your non-conscious brain does We just don't have a good mechanism at that point for getting you to turn it off. But where individuals are biased, groups tend to do better. It's a lot easier for you to see somebody else's confirmation bias, right? Or someone else's anchoring. It's harder for you to see it in yourself. It's the same that's true with any of these. So I go with the idea that for me to be an unbiased decision maker, unbiased toward race or gender is not a possible standard because you're dealing with a part of the brain that you can't consciously access. That's the whole point. But we can do better things by one, um, observing other people's bias and then being able to say, hey, I see some bias there. 
And that conversation is really what I think we're spending a lot of more time talking about, which is what does it take to stand up and say, I don't think you're doing the right thing. And what does it take for you to be able to say, I can't see it. I certainly didn't consciously choose it, but I trust you to tell me if you think there's some bias there, I should listen to that. And if we do that really well, human to human, we'll solve the problem rather than simply tell people you're biased. Don't do that anymore and leave everyone to their own devices. You've got a memorable term that you refer to as likable badass, Allison, and you give this advice to women that they should be one. So what is a likable badass and why do you suggest that women should be one? Yeah. So this is the, uh, the, the, my book title. Um, so like, so the basic idea is that whole competence and likability, right? Women always talk about, you can't have both, right? As soon as you go skew too far competent, everyone's like, they don't like you anymore. You're too aggressive. You go with, I'm, I'm sweet and I'm, I'm pacifying. And everyone says, ah, you don't really have leadership potential. You're not confident enough. Women have lamented that since the dawn of time. So long that I think women just accept that people just accept that's just a trade-off that women face. And the reality is it's not a trade-off that women face. Those are two independent dimensions. And I go back to my little hand graphic. Those are two independent things. You can be both. You should be both. They're both good for you. Competent and likable are both very good qualities, right? We're striving for those things, each of us every day. And when we achieve them, good things happen to us. The challenge for women is then, this is sort of where I sort of started in this space in terms of my own work, is that when you have lower status, competent and likable is not the default assumption that people make about you. They tend to give you one or the other or not both. That's not just for women. That's for any group that's lower status. And so what that means is you need to take action to, to be perceived as both, but you can, right? So, um, so for example, um, when we self-promote, right? Self-promotion is a pretty good strategy for getting people to think you're more competent. The reason we're afraid of it is because we're not going to be seen as very likable. It's not very humble to self-promote and that's a risk. It's real. Well, um, how strategic are we about getting other people to promote us, right? You'd say, oh, it'd be great. If other people promote you, there's actually no risk whatsoever. You get the competence bump. When, when I go tell everybody how great Jeff is, right? Everyone remembers like, oh, I heard something great about Jeff, but no one thinks what's wrong with Jeff? Like, you know, being so self-promoting. So are we being strategic enough getting other people to promote us? And there's a variety of different ways we could start to do that. Um, one is we promote them. Reciprocity governs all social interactions. So as soon as I do something nice for you, you're going to look for some way, even in your non-conscious brain to repay the favor. And so thinking about being strategic about, I'm, I'm putting goodness into the world, but I'm doing so in a way that's going to license other people to go and promote me. It's going to get me that competence and likability bump that I need, right? Mere exposure. We like people that we've been exposed to more. So how do I get my name recognition out there? And how do I be, you know, start being strategic about that? So there are small things that we can do that move us toward competent and likable. And the, the different, it's not men um, need it just as much. It's just that they tend to start there in the first place. Because when you're high status, the default rep, the default expectation before I've even met somebody, if I think that they have a lot of status, is I am going to expect them to be competent and likable. So men start there and have to work to give it up. And women don't start there and have to work to get it. But we're all going for the same thing. And so that's what I mean by likable badass, is that you've achieved that competent and likable. Yeah, you're, uh, you're reminding me of an article I read just a couple of days ago. It was timely. And, and it talked about the difference between mentorship and sponsorship and how 
sponsorship is really the one that's more impactful, especially when it comes to, again, giving license to underrepresented groups. So, um, uh, so sponsorship is certainly uh, what you're referring to, at least in part there. So that makes a lot of sense. Allison, let's, uh, let's shift a little bit now and talk about men and the role that we play in, in upholding this and, and why we don't sort of participate as much as, as, as we probably need to. I came across an interesting story about Martin Luther King this week. And it's funny how, again, this all sort of comes together sometimes uh, serendipitously. And it was somebody talking about how Martin Luther King was such a brilliant strategist. And one of the things that he understood was the, the plight of the civil rights movement wasn't about dealing with the people like the racists who violently opposed him. It was more about trying to curb inaction from whites who actually supported the movement. But for many, many reasons, they just chose not to act. And, and I have to think it's the same here that most men that I talk to, most men that I know, I think, identify that they want to be part of the solution here. They want to help create uh, balance, equality, all of those wonderful things. And yet we oftentimes stay on the sidelines. So first of all, I would be interested in your commentary in terms of how big of a challenge is that? And if it is, how can we start to move uh, beyond that as men to be advocates and allies? Yeah, great question. And so let's, I would take a step back for a second and say this idea about, um, racial um, equity and equality, gender equity and equality, um, those can feel very heavy and like, it, like those are hard problems to solve. But, but if you take a step back more generally, it's just a change. And we know a lot about managing changes, right? Whether you want to, you know, like change your work from home or work from anywhere policy, or whether you're trying to go for, a, you know, a different gender or racial balance in your, in your workforce, whatever it is, those are just changes. And so your point and, and the, and the, the you know, Martin Luther King quote about humans exist on a kind of continuum of their willingness to change in any given particular effort, right? And you have some people who are the real activists, like they're just in it from the beginning, but that's a small tale, right? And then at the other tale, you have the over my dead body, right? You will, I will never accept this change. And in, in the middle of any given normal distribution, right, is where you have 95% everybody else. And the idea is if you can get half of them to move in any change effort, you've solved your problem because then social proof will basically carry everybody else the rest of the way there, right? Because that's what now it becomes what everybody's doing. You don't need to get hundred percent and you don't need to spend right all of your time on that two and a half percent, right? Left tail um, of your distribution. So yeah, focus on people who are conceptually supportive, but aren't doing anything. And we see the science of that and one of my colleagues at UNC was part of this work, and it's great work, that basically said, you talk to men, and men will say, I believe 100% truthfully, absolutely, we should level the playing field for women. And then you look at what men are doing in organizations to level the playing field for women, and the answer is not a lot. Not a lot actively. And why is that psychologically? And the explanation um, that they give, uh, which is uh, underlies a couple different findings in psychology, is you have to feel like you have standing to be in a conversation, that you have a right to be there. You have a right to be in a, have an opinion. And so you often, if you're outside of a group, you don't feel like you have a right to have an opinion. You have a right to take action. So, I mean, I can use um, myself, you know, as an example, like I oftentimes will get people say to me, I was asked, a man will say, Hey, Allison, I was asked to speak about issues related to, you know, women's leadership, but 
I shouldn't be doing that because I'm a guy. So would you do it? And I understand where that's coming from. It's not so much that they feel like they don't have a perspective, but am I entitled to stand up and say, hey, here's what women should be doing. That's harder to do, right? If you're male than if you're female. Um, It's harder if you're white to be able to say, here's what we should be doing, right? Um, uh, Vis-a-vis race. And so what happens is people stay on the sidelines because they haven't been given an invitation to the party. And it's a vulnerable moment because you think, did the people want my help? And I feel this way all the time. I mean, I am not an active, an ally as I am in my own head in terms of the actions I take. Like I think about, you know, like um, gay and, and, and transgender rights or something like that, right? Um, I, I don't do as much as I could because I think, what am I supposed to be doing? And I, if I do something, I certainly want it to be seen as valuable by people in the community. Okay, so we stay on the sidelines. So, so what, that, what that means, right, is we need to invite people to the party. And we need to tell them what to do. And so one of the things I do as an, as an individual is I tell people what kind of allyship I want. Like, it's great if other people promote you. It is. You know what? If you ask them to do it, they almost always say yes, presuming you ask somebody who thinks you're worth promoting in the first place. So I'll ask people, hey, you know what? I could use your help here. I could use your help, like getting my name out. Um, convincing these people who's, that haven't seen what I've been doing, that I've been doing valuable work behind the scenes, et cetera. Ask people to be allies. If you want somebody to you know, stand up for you or, or, or attend a meeting or show their support or, or do whatever, you'd pretty much do anything that someone that you cared about asked you. And you would do it then with a lot more confidence because you would know they want me here. Like I, I'm entitled to be here. I was invited to the party. So um, that's why it happens. And I think we have to deal with it in a couple of ways. One is to say, get, we have to get over ourselves and say, Hey, you know what? Like if we have a good heart and good intentions, um, I'm sure we'll be helpful and just start trying. And I think the other is that if you're in the category and you want allies, um, you have to invite them and say, Hey, I could, I could use your help. Yeah. I, you know, speaking from personal experience, I think one of the, one of the challenges to, uh, to being an ally is quite often, I don't think I feel invited, but when it comes to social media, I, I feel a bit of a responsibility to share some of my perspectives and some of my views and try to be an advocate that way. And anytime you're doing that and you're speaking about a group that you are not a part of, you're taking a risk of getting stung. And you know, the more you do it, the more you're going to get stung. And your analysis of the bell curve is helpful, I think, Allison, because I, I kind of talk about stepping on landmines and like stepping on the landmine has to be worth it because of the gain and, and the license that you're giving to an underrepresented group. But I think you're right that the people that you might get stung by might be more on the tip of that curve, but the majority of people will sort of appreciate the help. And of course, you know, we have to be educated. We have to learn. We have to speak from our own perspective and not somebody else's that, that, that we're not a part of. Um, but you're also, I think, reminding me that advocacy and allyship does not have to, to happen under a spotlight. It can happen with the person that you've been working with for 15 years. So, uh, so, so that's an interesting perspective. I want to share a, a study that, that, that surfaced recently as well. And it was regarding conformity to wrong beliefs. So, and that's, mm. I thought this was fascinating. So 87% of Saudi men privately agreed that they supported women working, 
but 70% of them thought that men in general were less supportive. So that prevented them from sort of speaking up and being allies. So when men started to learn of the real support, six month employment among their wives went up 179%. So this gives further evidence, I think, to uh, that, that we have to talk in the circles that we're in, whether it's social media or if it's forum groups or with our teams inside of our companies or our friends. These are conversations that we have to have because I think we're more alike in our views than we probably realize. And in this living in a in sort of a place of polarity right now, I think that's harder to do. I'm just interested if you have any, any commentary on that, Allison. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't know if they cited it, but the, the underlying psychology to that to me seems to be false consensus. We think everybody thinks that we don't, or maybe pluralistic ignorance. We actually don't understand um, that everybody um, thinks that everybody else holds a different view and you're the only one that's unique. Um, so there, we have good good examples of that in, in psychology. Uh, and I think that's, that's right, which is, it's hard to, it's hard to stray away from the, from the crowd it just is. And so once you realize the crowd has a different belief, it's easier to stand up and say, Oh, that's what I believe too. And I think that it does require right. People with power and standing to say, here's what I think. And one of the things that we can all each do as individuals is we have more power than we realize. And the ability to influence other people and say, hey, here's what I, I think um, can, be, can be very, very impactful. And the other thing that came to my mind as you were saying that is that, you, that not only there's a variety of different ways you can be an ally, but there's also just, I mean, there's a bunch of different tasks you can undertake. So for example, for me, um, one of the things that I do is that I, when I think about my volunteer efforts, right? I try to think about how I can use the things I'm good at, my professional expertise to add value to underrepresented groups. And so for me, a lot of that is playing the same role that I play, but in, in different, in different audiences. So, you know, I sit on, um, on boards where I prioritize, um, boards that are doing something that where their organizational mission is to improve the outcomes of, again, underrepresented and underrewarded individuals. And I say no to other things. And I do that in the sort of an extension of my professional identity, but it's a way that I contribute. Um, wh whereas there's things I don't do. You know, I, I, I had a friend who did the Women's March on Washington. She asked me if I would go. And I said, there's no way I'm going to that. Like that is not how I um, am going to be an ally. Not because I didn't think it was great for everybody else to go, but it wasn't my thing. And so I think that's also good for people to recognize is you don't have to do everything. And for most people, this is not their life's work. That's not what being an ally is. It's finding something in my discretionary efforts that both fits me, I think fits my talents and feels right for me. And if everyone did that, everyone we would do a tremendous amount of good. I like that. I really like that. And I wonder, I wonder if there's some psychology around this, that when we think about being an ally or helping with some large endeavor, I, 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 that we're more focused on what the ultimate outcome is, as opposed to what the first step is. And I think uh, there probably is some evidence to that. So that's helpful. Just take one small step, just, just, just do something. What about zero sum game, uh, Allison? Like how, how, how does that sort of play into this? Like, if we're going to create a more level playing field, does that mean that I have to give something up to be able to do that? Well, it depends on what, what we're, what we're talking about. Right. So if you think about like 
positions in organizations and organizations don't grow, well, then those positions are probably finite, right? Um, And so if we are going to have more women in the positions, we would have less men. So I think some things are finite. Um, But I think other other, um, things are not. Like status, the beauty of status is it's infinite right? Like power can, can be constrained, but status is infinite. Like we can hold a lot of people in high regard and that doesn't have to be, to be limiting. So, yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what you're talking about, but there's certainly, and I think this is part of the challenge, right? Is that people say, I'm totally happy for someone else to do. I was a very individualistic um, worldview that we have in the Western part of the world. I'm very happy for you to do well. I'm just not giving up anything to make that happen. And at the end of the day, that's a, probably explains a lot of why we're stalled. Not just that I'm not, I'm not willing to give up my own power, but I'd have to give up my own time or I'd have to um, choose a different priority and not accomplish something else at work because I was making this a priority. That's giving up something, right? Even if it's not a direct threat to my own power or position, um, it requires sacrifice. And so, you know, we have to decide that that's valuable. Yeah. Is, is sacrifice going to be enough to really sort of move, move the pendulum though? I wonder if sacrifice for sure, but I wonder if we have to believe that there's a, that there's a, there's, there's a bigger prize. There's, there's more that we can accomplish. I mean, I think a little bit about Dan Price and what he's done creating a minimum and I didn't get there overnight, but Dan Price in Seattle, of course, with his tech company where they've got a minimum salary of $70,000. He cut his pay, I think, yeah, more than in half, and he still makes a, a, a really good wage, but their company is performing better. They're, they're achieving abnormal outcomes, things that they never, never would have achieved had they not done that. So I am wondering more and more if, if we can finally move to a place where we believe that we can all achieve more together and it, and it isn't a zero sum kind of a conversation. So we'll, and, I, guess, I guess we'll see. No, you, I mean, you're hundred percent right. I, and, and I, I would just want to emphasize the, the, um, the disclaimer I made, which is if, if we don't grow, then it becomes there is if we grow through it, right? And we know that diversity is actually performance enhancing. So there, there's a variety of different motives one could hold to be able to create level playing fields for more people. But we know that diverse groups outperform homogeneous groups, diverse organizations outperform or, or homogeneous organizations. And so the 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 you know the the business argument is when we do it, we grow. And then when we grow, we create more opportunity for people that where there was none before. And I think Dan Price is a good you know, a good example of that. So yeah, that it, I think the idea is that it doesn't have to stay static and let's hope yeah. it doesn't. Yeah. Allison, when I was putting the structure for this conversation together, it sounded like there were sort of three distinct parts and they might be more blurred now that we've, now that we've gotten uh, to this point in, in the, in the discussion, but I, th- I wanted to talk a little bit about systems and structures and talk about sort of the bigger, the, the bigger picture here and how we might dismantle some of those and maybe what some of those structures are. And just this morning, as a matter of fact, you, man, you mentioned Adam Grant and he was referencing uh, uh, some study findings that were released this week, showing that women with masculine traits are more likely to experience sexual harassment in the workplace. And it's not driven from sexual desire, it's driven by power and men's desire to hold on to it. And of course, even worse in male dominated workplaces. And uh, so I'll I'll, kind of use that as the segue. And if you want to talk a little bit about maybe some of the structures that we haven't talked about that are creating uh, to a large extent, the inequality that we have right now. 
Yeah. I mean, so that, that research is consistent with my own, which is um, power without status turns out to be a fairly ugly combination, right? When people hold like more control, so you say even more masculine characteristics, you have a lot of control um, or you're seen as being more powerful um, and you don't have the status that goes with it, right? I, we see a lot of, a lot of challenges. And one is that people experience a lot more incivility and uncivil and hostile outcomes in the workplace, right? And this idea of harassment, sexual harassment is just another example of that. Um, and so uh, th- I think this is one of the one of the real challenges we have to confront is that it's not that hard to control who has what power. So if you made it your goal, you could put power wherever you wanted it, uh, uh, distribute it wherever you wanted it across individuals, right? Male or female. What's hard is the status piece of it, which is to get respected and valuable. Um, and I think that's the, that's the more, the more, um, challenging piece. What about hiring? So I think we, we understand, uh, hiring a woman, not just because she's a woman, but hire her because she's the best candidate. But one of the challenges with that is a resume may not look the same for a man as it does a woman. And you could have a great candidate but the, the female candidate is not going to have the robustness of experiences as an example. So how can we tell that we have a great female candidate when their resume may not look as good as a male one? So a couple things, I mean, back to this, this point I made earlier, which is you put the identical resume in front of people and you change the name, you change the reading of that resume. So that is important for us to know because I see this all the time. It's like, well, we would, Hey, we just go with best athlete around here. We're happy to hire the best athlete, but guess what? Like in the NFL, the best athletes tend to be male. So that's why we have all male football players. So this is what we do. Um, and recognizing that we're reading those resumes differently. So, but I mean, what are there things that we can, that we can do about that? Right. They would take work, but that's a very solvable problem, right? Which is, we're not going to read them the way we currently read them, right? We're going to basically have people talk about like what they're going to contribute to the role. And we're going to evaluate their, you know, their, their descriptions of their contributions. We're not going to have, look at people's names. Some of these things are challenging. I'm going to hire somebody I know. I already know you. I can't unring that bell. But the point is that one is we don't look at it the same. And then, um, and then the second is, I think we, we often put, higher standards, right. On, uh, on when we will, we'll certainly hire the female candidate, right. But they have to be the best female that you've, you've ever seen for a hundred years. And, you know, I think in a lot of cases, right. Um, in, in like in my world, like we hire in situations where we can afford to be wrong. Right. And say, we can't change this if we're not willing to take a chance on people and say, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm going to forget hiring. Like one of the things I'm surprised at is why we don't have more uh, requirements that your search cannot proceed unless you have a diverse slate of candidates, right? That doesn't always solve selection problems, but I see people not even basically holding that as a standard and saying, Hey, we went through all the resumes, like ah, top three candidates, they're all men. Well, we tried, we read them all. Um, so 
you know, there's that's it's a very solvable problem. We just have to decide that we're going to put the work in and change the system, which in a large organization is a very bureaucratic, well-oiled machine about how we hire, right? And we're just going to kind of keep doing the thing because it's too much work for anybody to undo it. But you know, you can undo it at the big level or you can undo it at the small level. Like I'm a manager. I look at resumes. We're going to do it differently here in my group than the way the the big organization does it. You even had some commentary on how automation in the hiring uh, in the hiring world uh, with software, as an example, uh, has some unfair biases woven into some of them. And uh, one of them being if it weeds out anybody that has a gap in their resume. So we really do have to sort of read between the lines. And from personal experience, I mean, we have a we have a 22 person organization. So we're at the size where everybody has to be a star performer and two of our uh, absolute uh, incredible uh, uh, team members, Andrea and Nicole, they uh, came to us after uh, uh, raising kids uh, for, for you know, 15 to 20 years. They hadn't worked in a long time. Big gaps, but big gains for us. Like we're so fortunate to have them. And I think there's a lot of opportunities coming out of COVID now where there's gonna be a lot of bright, uh, talented uh, uh, female uh, candidates looking for places to work. And if you've got the kind of culture that's looking for those places and you're intentional about um, making decisions as a leadership group, you're going to be the place that they choose, which, uh, which is also great. Uh, Allison, I've got some sort of bonus questions, maybe not completely related to, okay. to leveling the, play, the, the playing field here, but I wonder if you could share some tips about negotiating for a job if you've been laid off during COVID. I know you've had lots to say about this. And it's something that people are trying to grapple with right now. How do I negotiate my job if I haven't had one or I've been laid off? Do you have any advice for people? Yeah. So it's, it's very common. I, what I would say is you got to get out of your own head and you have to get into your audience's head. So what the, the, it all comes down to, do I see myself as powerful? And when I don't have a role, a job, I think, oh, I have no power. Therefore, I have no negotiating leverage. And that's not true, right? Really, your power comes from how dependent uh, the hiring person is on you. So yeah, if it's a market where there are a thousand substitutes for you, you probably don't have a lot of leverage. But your task when you negotiate or you go for a role is to convince people there are no substitutes for me. Could you hire a different person? Absolutely. Would that person be nearly as good as I am? Absolutely not, right? And the better you make that case in the interview process, the more likely you are to get the job and be able to negotiate it. So I always say, don't focus on the past. You're focused on forward contributions. Here are the amazing talents and skills I would bring to your organization. Here's what I'm going to do. If you do that in a compelling, convincing way, and this per- the, and the, the, the recruiter thinks, we need you. Like We can't go live without you. They don't care what you're currently doing at this point. Um, they, they want you. And so if you're well-prepared, you know what that role offers. You can go with a first offer advantage, make your ask. Here's what I'm looking for. Um, it's really how dependent they are on you not just how dependent you are on them. So the more you convince them, I am a unique snowflake, right? There is nobody else quite like me. You have your leverage back. And that's what I encourage people to think about. And the other thing is too, not everybody who's employed is desperate to be reemployed. Just because you might feel desperate, that's not the narrative you have to tell, which is, guess what COVID is convincing everybody? there's a lot of more to life than what I was doing sitting at my desk or going to the office. And so a lot of people are in different situations now by choice. And so you go with that narrative, which is 
I've, this has been an amazing experience for me, right? I have grown and reevaluated. And when I go back to an organization, it's going to be one that is worthwhile for me to actually go back into the workforce again. And one that's going to align with my purposes. And, you know, you, you, this organization just might, might be it. So I, you know, the story that we tell shapes a lot about how powerful people see us. And so I don't see, I think it feels really bad but it doesn't weaken people's leverage nearly as much as the stories they tell themselves. Allison, we're going through this big talent migration right now. One of the biggest challenges with amongst the groups that we talk to is, is finding people, finding great people. And the only thing worse than not being able to find good people is losing your existing great talent. So this is, I think, a prime time for employees to be negotiating the terms of their employment with their bosses. Any tips for negotiating employment terms? Um, well, you, you need your data, you need your compelling reason and your reason should always be again about what value you deliver and, uh, data is very helpful. And I always tell people get the most strategic version of the data that you can and say, you know, so like if you've been working from, this is a big one. I get you, I, I've been working from home. My company's going back to the office, at least partially. I don't want to do that. I don't want to stay from home. That's a negotiation. Well, okay. I see what's in it for you. What's in it for them. If you can't tell that story, you're not going to be very likely to get what you want. Okay, well, here's how I've used the time at home. Here are the three initiatives that were stalled for 18 months that we actually got done during COVID. Here's the extra hours and how I've been able to use them and what we've been able to do in terms of mentorship on our team. Here's the initiatives we created. That's a much more compelling conversation. And so um, go to the table. Don't be afraid to do it and go with the here's why this is good for you story. That's particularly important for women um, because we expect them to be caring about other people. And you go with the here's what's good for you story, not the here's why I want what I, I want. Everyone knows you're there because that's what you want. You got to sell it for why it's what's in it for them. And I think that's the piece people miss. Allison, before we transition into three and 30, is there anything that you were hoping we were going to get a chance to discuss today. Anything else that you wanted to bring up or mention before we do that? No, but only because I just came here curious to hear what you were going to ask me and not because I came with any, any particular agenda. So no, I, you've done a, a, a great job navigating us through this. Love it. Well, and you've given us a lot of insights and a lot to think about. And, and what I, and I love about your approach, you tell, I mean, you tell fascinating stories. So we remember it but you provide the research and then some really tangible steps that we can take to actually do something. Cause of course that's, that's where the change comes from. Now, the other thing that you mentioned earlier was the title of your book. Does that mean you're actually committed to writing a book now? I am pretty committed. I got to put some hedge or qualifier in there. Yeah. Well, that's great to hear. That is great to hear. Uh, if you don't follow Allison on LinkedIn, you should, because it's as entertaining as it is educational and informative. And let's uh, transition now into our three and 30. So Allison, you've come up with three things that listeners can do in the next 30 days to take some steps to level the playing field in the workplace. What are those three things? Yeah. And so these do uh, relate to the things that we chatted about. So something you could do, sing the praise of one woman or one person of color um, to somebody else, which is take 30 seconds out of your day to share the good work that somebody is doing. And I call that sponsorship light because you brought up this idea about sponsorship versus mentorship. They're both good, but this idea of, oh my goodness, I have to pick a person and I have to decide that I am going to propel their career forward for the rest of my life. That's a lot. Well, you don't need to make that commitment on day one. Just go say one 
good thing about great work that someone's actually doing and tell another person about it. And if you've done that, you've been a sponsor in that moment. And you do that once a week, you've sponsored 52 instances, right? Whether it's the same person or a different person. So that's one. Um, we get a lot of discretionary asks, things that we do not have to do. You want to be on this team, this, this, this task force, you want to join this committee, you want to come speak at this event. Um, ask about the diversity of the other people who are invited before you say, yes, I was just posting about this related to men and women. Um, one of uh, this panelist I was talking to used the term mantle, which I had not heard, for, heard of before, a panel of all men. And he said, I don't serve on mantles. I said, that's a great uh, specific action, which is if, if there are women who could be experts, I won't, I won't show up unless you've found some. Um, that's something that we can do. If you make that as a personal standard and say, I'm going to just ask the question every single time. And what's interesting is once you start asking the question, it changes people's behavior and they think, hmm, I should be thinking about that too. And if I don't think about that, people aren't going to show up. And then the third one is the, the one that I had mentioned about if you are a woman, right? If you're a person of color and you say, I, we need allies, um, invite allies to the table. One thing that you can do is go ask somebody as an ally to take a specific action, either on your behalf or the behalf of your group in general, tell them what you want. And that will license those allies to come to the table and say, okay, I know that I'm invited into this conversation. Well, those sound like three things that we can all certainly uh, undertake. And I, and I love, again, how you've brought it back to mutual responsibility. So women helping themselves, men becoming allies, not just men forcing themselves into the conversation, but of course, men being courageous, but also being invited a bit more intentionally to the table. So great advice. And Allison, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you today. I mean, I adore you as a person, your work and, and everything you stand for and your approach. You have been uh, just such a huge friend, not just to me, but to our whole results team. And I know our whole community of leaders that have had a chance to see you speak multiple times in person and have been following you closely. Uh, you've been a big friend to this show as well and, and invited lots of other guests. And so I, I just cannot thank you enough and expressing my gratitude for, uh, for all of your friendship and everything that you've done for me and for us. So thank you very much for joining us today. It is my pleasure. And I will, I will offer, because I think everybody should hear this, a compliment back to you, which is that I think one of the things that if you added a fourth thing to that slide, and one of the things I think that makes this program that you've created so great is that you as a person, like you really show up, I've said this to you before, with beginner's mind. Like every time I watch you interview somebody, you come with a real curiosity about learning and you have a real learning orientation. And I think if every individual showed up in every interaction of, I want to learn, there's things I do not know, that would go a long way to enable us to have better conversations about equity and equality. And so thank you for doing it. I think that's what makes this show really cool. Yeah. Well, th thanks for saying that. That, um, that means a lot to me. And it's, uh, it's pretty authentic, though, if this COVID experience has taught me anything, it is about how little I know about anything. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not hard to show up with a beginner's mind. And uh, we all have a lot of learning to do. And I think if we approach things from a, a place of curiosity, uh, we, all, we all win and, and, and we all learn. So thank you for those comments, Allison. What a pleasure to see you today and speak with you. Look forward to seeing you again.
And thanks to the audience for joining us today and reminding you to stay connected. So you can find Allison on LinkedIn for the time being. I keep convincing her to try to go on Twitter, but she's not there yet. But find all of her content by connecting with her there. And we will await the release date of her book. I can't wait to see that. And stay connected with us on all of our social channels. So find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Of course, find us on our YouTube page as well where all of the YouTube or all of the, uh, the episode links are available for your viewing pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you saw, don't forget to share episode links with your friends and colleagues. And if you're ready to take the next step and you're part of a leadership team that you just know has untapped potential, don't wait another moment. Go to unleashresults.com, subscribe to our newsletter, and we'll take care of the rest.